The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, for today we're going to talk about the Metta Sutta. I feel quite excited about this, actually. It's, uh, for me, it's a meaningful sutta. I have practiced with this a uh, certain amount. At one time, I um, kind of crazily had it in my car, and that was like everything that I just listened to while I was driving, just to help me familiarize myself, memorize it, and practice with it. And There have been times when I meditated a lot, kind of with uh, reciting the metta sutta. And it's probably one of the most popular suttas in this tradition. Some of you may say, well, what about the mindfulness? That's true, mindfulness is definitely really popular too. But metta sutta is something that gets added to almost whatever we're doing. It's added. If you, those of you who have been on retreat know that it's not uncommon to do the chanting of the metta sutta in the evening. That's where I was first introduced to it. Or if there's going to be a gathering of people that's kind of auspicious or important, they'll chant the metta sutta together. If the monastics are together and they only have time for a short amount of chanting, they'll chant the metta sutta. So it's a big part of our tradition. And I know in those countries where Theravada Buddhism is the dominant religion, it's very, very important and it's something that they practice with all the time. So what is this? What is this metta sutta? It's a little bit of what we'll be um, unpacking with today. But I say let's just jump in and we'll look at it. So I have the metta sutta printed out here. And if somebody could help me pass these out. Thank you, Andrew and Richard. Thank you. And when you get this, you'll see that I put uh, numbers next to the lines, that's just to help us have conversation. So somebody could say, well, number 22 says this, but number 33 says that. And you'll see that I um, kind of grouped uh, certain lines together. And we'll talk about that as the day unfolds, like why those lines are grouped together. Jordan here in the front doesn't have one. Richard, can you give one to Jordan here? <laughs> this is what happens when you sit near the front. You end up... Uh... And maybe Sylvie? And Andrew, can you turn on the samovar while you're uh, walking back there, the, the hot water thing, just so that at the break people can have tea? Oh, it is on. Oh, okay, great. Oh, yeah, I guess I need one too, right? Yeah, yeah. So Richard just asked me, is this the Abayagiri translation? Yes. And we'll talk about this as the day goes, but this is the translation that is most commonly used here, certainly at this center, if you go on retreats, any other center, Spirit Rock, IRC, IMS. So kind of the big, um, the bigger 
centers use this translation. And we'll talk about this, what the difference is of different um, translations. And as I said, it's often chanted. So I thought we would begin by just listening to the monks chant it. We'll just listen to begin. And we're going to do this in a very low-tech way that I'm going to have this here on my phone and I'm going to put it towards the microphone and um, I think this will work. Okay, here we go. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be like to hear these monastics to be chanting? They're not quite singing, are they? It's a little bit chanting. 
There's like there are few tones. It's kind of like this narrow range. I know there's a few people. Oh, so Richard, maybe Andrew, can you? Oh, here's a here's a microphone. No, you can go ahead. If not, I mean, I'm happy to speak, but. Uh, I was just going to comment that uh, I think there's a lot of adaptation in chanting, from my experience. So hearing the the monks chat chant, the sutta is very different than the way that let's say I chant it, and the one the recording that's on uh, our website is a group of us that got together and did the chanting, and it was a little more mellifluous because. And it's maybe because of we're lay people and they're monastics and they're just like, you know, they don't want any personality in it at all. You know, that's my thought. Just one comment. Yeah. That's right. It's kind of striking, right? How it's kind of not like, not a, yeah, it's a little bit monotone. But they are a community. These are a community of monastics and part of the way that they chant maybe expresses that, uh, which you use this word, not a lot of personality. Well, maybe, you know, for them, chanting isn't a place to express yourself. It has other functions. Sylvie. I would have described (coughs) uh, what they were singing as, not singing, but humming. Mm. And it actually felt very powerful for me because it was actually not singing. (laughs) And it was really kind of a a presence, like a bird, you know, like this humming um, that could just be in the background all the time. Like the singing would be distracting to like doing something else, but I, I felt it was very powerful, felt presence. Thank you, Silly. Let's chant it. <laughs> Let's chant it together. I'll play them, so we, the, we'll have them to kind of guide us. And... Um, those, I know there's a number of people in this room who know this chant, kind of like know the melody. You're welcome to hum along. I would invite you to try to like use your voice. Even if you feel like, okay, you're not quite sure. We're here, we are not here to be, we're not a choral group. We're not going to be uh, doing the obvious. Um, I myself am one of those people that can't hold a tune and... Um, but it's okay. That's uh, to try and keep their range similar to theirs. I think um, I, I what I'm interested in, why the part of the reason why I'm keeping theirs is for the pace. But if you feel like you want to augment it or do something like this, you're welcome to do that. But we'll use them as the pace because I know for myself I want to go a little bit faster, and they're doing a little bit lower, uh, slower. For them, I'll just so you know, it only takes two minutes and 50 seconds. So maybe it feels like two hours. Maybe it feels like, (laughs) just because it's a little bit slower. But um, let's chant it together. And we'll we'll, we'll see, we'll kind of see what this is like. Maybe I should ask, was that okay? Was the volume okay the way that I did this, holding the the phone like this, Richard? Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, Richard's saying that he, we can do a more sophisticated version of this, but I, I, let's just keep this low-tech. <laughs> we'll just keep this simple and, you know, maybe it's high-tech that I have a phone, but it's uh, low-tech that I'm just holding it next to the microphone. Okay, so um, you'll, you'll hear that uh, the monks start with, um, I think he's saying, now let us chant the Buddha's words on loving kindness. So that's what we'll hear at the beginning. And then we'll just jump right in. And, that's like the one yeah, and Richard's saying that's just a one leader. Who's just, he's leading the monastics just like he's going to lead us. And I think I will do this so that you don't hear my voice over them. <laughs> You'll thank me later. <laughs> okay. Simultaneously. We'll do this simultaneously. I, I know some in the room know this. And so, and just fake it. If you don't know it, just fake it, right? This is all, it's, this is practice. It's not about our becoming a singing group or something like this. We'll talk later about what function this has and how it's part of Buddhist practice and all that kind of thing. But I think it's helpful for us to have an experience of it before we start kind of like talking about it. Okay, so here we go. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection, 
This is said to be the sublime abiding, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Okay, so how was that? Anybody want to share? What was it like to be chanting along the monastics? Felt like our sangha was a lot bigger. Felt like our sangha was bigger, right? (laughs) Felt like there's more voices uh, involved here. Can we use the microphone? Just I think it'll be just so everybody can hear. And it's not really worthy of a microphone. The green light No, I just I just got into the vibration of it. Yeah, I felt this constant vibration going on. Yeah. For me, it was vibration. Yeah, it's like a physical experience, right? Especially with these monastics who have they're kind of using a their particular voice and yeah. Thank you, thank you. I mean, I, I, I Can you use the mic? <laughs> no, I, I, I like chanting because of the, even if it's silent chanting, but, but especially now, I, I don't usually chant aloud, so it was interesting to feel the vibration. That's all. It's yeah. just about vibration. Yeah, yeah. Kind of the physical experience, of the feeling in the body, it's not just saying words out loud. Does anybody else have a comment, Sylvie? Um, yeah, when um, when they were singing, um, like and I, I was following reading because I I don't know the the sutta, it felt like oh why do they stop here and do this like it I didn't kind of expect it, uh, but then when we were singing along, it felt like there was a logic to it, like there was a reason why. It was going up and down, like it just felt very rhythmical. Mm, nice, nice. Felt a little, it made more sense, or yeah, yeah. So, why do you imagine that historically, or we can say even in contemporary times, why do people, not necessarily the Metta Sutta, but why chant at all as part of practice? What would be the benefits, the purpose, the function of any chanting? Does the question, is the question about a group chant or a single person chant? He's asking whether the chant is about a group or people. Why don't we say both? Either. Well, as a group, it would sound to me like it's a feeling of community. We're all on the same page. Yeah. Um. And as an individual, I guess it would go back for me to the, um, what is the momentum of vibration, where you just kind of lose yourself in the sound. Yeah. Sound is a powerful brainwave uh, kind of practice. Yeah. Especially if it's kept within a certain range, it has that monotone momentum going. And you kind of just lose yourself like you would in the breath. You can lose yourself in the sound. Excellent.
exactly. So it promotes community, and it kind of also, should I say, demotes the self. You just kind of, you're part of something bigger, both with the sound and with uh, the being with others. What's uh, another reason, Sonia? That, um, especially if you are able to connect with the sense of community, as well as the meaning of the words, there's a real arousing of, of joy and energy and a full integration of body and mind in a way that is um, very supportive for practice for me. Mm, nice. Integration of body and mind. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Can we send the microphone back there? Oh, I'm sorry. Andrew, okay. did you I was just going to say, say embodiment. Embodiment. Okay. Uh, no, behind. Can you raise your hand again so he knows where to put the mic? <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. I was just going to say, I don't know this uh, sutta, so I was reading, but I do think reading, or I should say repeating words out loud like a chant, reinforces it, I think, neurologically, the actual message. And so that's what I was getting from it. So I have done loving-kindness meditations, but silently, and then reading the words in my head. But I feel like saying them out loud just reinforces the, the actual message to actually sort of be this way. Yeah. It's a different experience to hear them or to say them out loud than to mm-hmm. just read them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll say in the um, Tibetan tradition, in their monasteries, there's a real, real emphasis on memorization. And, you know, they memorize voluminous amounts of uh, sacred literature. It's fascinating for me that in that tradition, if you uh, memorize, you say it out loud. So the monasteries are actually really noisy because everybody's saying things out loud, just saying to themselves over and over again, out loud is a way to memorize. I think all of us can have this experience that saying it out loud is a little bit different. Anybody else have a comment? We can also use, the, we can pass the microphone hand to hand so that Andrew doesn't have to pop up. We have two microphones and we'll just allow them to wander around the room. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, I noticed, um, I know this is true, you know, in daily life as well. Like if you say something out loud, it, you know, it does have a different um, experience. But I noticed just chanting it with everybody versus reading it. I was able actually to visualize what these words look like in like real life. So that was kind of more powerful to me versus just reading it. Like, okay, these are words and they mean this, but with, like saying it and chanting it, I like kind of envisioned what the world or certain situations would look like with these type of um, principles. So Nice. Yeah. Nice. It came alive in a certain way, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Great. So um, one of you mentioned uh, loving-kindness practice. Those of you who have been to my happy hour, or that's Nikki's happy hour, or um, I've just done loving kindness practice, you know that it looks pretty different than this. Like, what? <laughs> How are they related? So, for those of you who haven't done kind of like contemporary loving kindness practice, the way that I teach it, there's a number of different ways you can teach it, the way that I teach it is that we um, have like three aspects of this. One is that we bring an individual to mind. It could be like a benefactor, somebody um, for whom it's easy to feel loving kindness. 
might check in with the body and see if there's some feelings of warmth or openness associated with that. And then in order to cultivate and develop this sense of uh, well-wishing, goodwill that we want to send initially to the benefactor, we say phrases, we repeat phrases. Phrases that we often use here is, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you live with ease. And then the meditation practice is to be repeating these phrases kind of over and over in a relaxed way and allowing um, any warm-heartedness to, um, to naturally expand and to fill your, fill your experience. And then after starting with the, um, the benefactor where it's easy, then we expand it, we expand uh, loving-kindness and include more and more uh, types of people neutral persons, dear persons, difficult persons. It usually goes in a systematized way. And yet we just chanted the metta sutta. And we don't see that in the metta sutta. So what's the link uh, between the... between the the contemporary practice and what we... um, the contemporary practice and what we just saw in the Metta Sutta. So I'll give a little bit of a background and then um, I'll open it up to some questions and comments and we'll discuss this further. So many of you might know that the, um, this, I'll use this word, scriptures that are preserved for this particular tradition, Theravada Buddhism, that is the um, earliest form of Buddhism, distinct from Zen and distinct from Tibetan, distinct from Pure Land. This is kind of a unique uh, tradition. These are, we use this word, a sutta, S-U-T-T-A, metta sutta, sutta to um, use the word for scripture. The suttas, uh, they started, maybe I should say there's thousands of them. We're just talking about one here. They are preserved in this language called Pali, P-A-L-I. And they are collected into books. There's about five books. And this Metta Sutta happens to show up twice in the last book, the Kudaka Nikaya. You don't need to know these uh, Pali words. Um then it's just natural that this is what happens, I think, with all um, religious teachings. They start often with a narrative, maybe with the founder, the leader who's giving a teaching. And just like you might do, if you're hearing somebody give a talk, you might take notes. When you take notes, they might be bulleted notes or they may be kind of like, uh, um, you know, shortened forms or just things that help you remember what the person had said. Maybe it doesn't, it's not all fleshed out. Maybe a systematization. So that happened with the kind of the Buddhist teachings. Those got captured and preserved in the Abhidhamma. You don't need to know this either. Just for if those of you who know the Abhidhamma, you'll understand this. It's just a whole bunch of lists, and it's tremendous and amount of lists. And then what happens after that is that there's a um, 
commentaries, people like, well, this is what's really meant. Here's the backstory of why this was uh, teaching was given, and oh, this is a little bit difficult here. Let me um, augment it with my own understanding based on my own um, practice. So it might be something like a Dharma talk or something like this. That got captured in the commentaries, what we call the commentaries. For the most part, those are around 800, 1,000 years after the time of the Buddha. So we have the suttas, for the most part, not exclusively, for the most part are narratives. There's a lot of narrative where the, uh, the Buddha is teaching. And then there's some systemization happening and or maybe a treatise. You know, a treatise, a commentary can be like a treatise, but a treatise is more um, related exactly to what's written, whereas a commentary has like maybe some personal opinions added to it. So this is what we see happening with the Metta Sutta. It started as scripture, and then through the millennia, thousands of years, right, we end up with um, how we practice today. And to kind of uh, and to highlight that, I'd like to um, have another handout and to draw it to it a little bit more specifically. Thank you. There will be no quizzes. So I tried to outline or um, highlight this with this first table on the top, the phrases. So in the Metta Sutta, we have this line, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. And then maybe around a thousand years later when this got captured and they write about it, it got changed to may all beings be free from enmity, affliction and anxiety and live happily. And then, you know, another thousand, another 1500 years, we get to this. May all beings be safe. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy may all beings live with ease. It's just the way things have evolved. For those of you who practice with metta, you know that there's different phrases, not always this one or these uh, group of four. Are there any comments about this or questions?
It makes a lot of sense to me based on what you explained before. Um, so he started with uh, singing, and the second one is kind of uh, obviously a commentary that's not something you would you could repeat. It's too complicated a sentence. It doesn't have any rhythm. Um, you know, it's just something you, like an essay, you just capture. Uh, to explain, it's more descriptive. And then it goes back to um, something that you can actually embody and remember. And uh, But it comes from that, so it, same meaning, but more um, repetitive and rhythmical. It goes back to kind of uh, singing without the song, more the rhythmic part. Mm, mm, nice. Thank you, Sylvie. So it can be memorized again. Yeah, yeah. I think Tanya has uh, something. I have a question. Mm-hmm. So um, there are two suttas that I think about related to the Metta Sutta. One has to do with a bunch of monks committing suicide after striving in their practice and the Buddha advising them to practice Metta. And another has to do with monks who went to a forest and um, the tree spirits were said to be attacking them and they left for the um, and went back to the Buddha and the Buddha said, go back and do metta for the tree spirits. And I'm wondering where those stories are in relationship to this continuum and if you know the particular phrases that were um, given in that context. Yes. So the uh, first story that you're talking about is um, So this is the Metta Sutta. When we see loving kindness that's uh, referred to in any other setting in the actual canon as the actual sutta, this is how it's described. You probably know it. And, you know, I don't have it uh, written down here. The practitioner, it's something like this, pervaded in one direction with a heart of loving kindness, then in the second direction, then in the third direction, then in the fourth direction. Full stop. That's all it is. That's all it is that we find. And then this uh, other thing about uh, the tree spirits, we'll talk about this later, and that's definitely a commentary, right? This is like a color thing that gets added, like, okay, what what was the setting in which the metta sutta was given? Like, what caused the Buddha, to give this teaching. And um, I did a little bit of research on this, and I found some things that I thought were kind of interesting and fun. So um, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later. For those of you who have um, who listened to a lot of Dharma talks or sat on retreat, you might have heard of this story. And when I, um, when I went to look to see what's actually in there, there's a few points in there that I think, I don't know, we'll explore this a little bit later. But I think what Tanya is pointing to is that um, there are references to loving kindness elsewhere in the Pali Canon, but it just says the person, I don't remember what that verb is exactly, is uh, maybe like pervades the first direction with loving kindness. Like that's all it says. This is the only place where there's something a little bit more robust or a little bit more um, augmented. And we do find that in a number of different settings. In the Majjhima Nakaya, there is the sutta, um, and um, let me see if I can bring the words to mind. It says a little bit more than that. So it's um, radiating kindness. Oh, let's see. 
Darsh. I can't. Uh, I'll, uh, maybe I'll remember it. But there's more instructions because there's two sets pervading the mind. One quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness. Second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter um, of the mind. Um, I will abide pervading the mind. A mind one quarter with loving kindness. Likewise the second. Likewise the third. Likewise the fourth, so above and below, around and everywhere, for all is for oneself. I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, freed from hatred and ill-will. You're right. You're right. So it does have that uh, some of that directional saying, exalted and abundant. But it doesn't say like what is loving kindness, how to practice. It's just describing what you're doing with it's this kind of uh, I'll call this directional pervasions, and that gets us to the second set of tables here, or this that there's again this evolution of instructions to pervade. Pervade's kind of a weird word. Um, so often we use that, but maybe a better word would be to radiate metta, to, to kind of like send it out. And in the metta sutta, you can see here that um, this unspecified pervasion, whatever living beings there may be. I can't help it when I say it. I'm thinking of the. Um, uh, I'm doing it with the, like that little uh, chanting voice. Um, and that's like line 15. Or maybe we could say 13 through 15. Or 14 through 15. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be. That's the unspec. Well, and then we can go on to the... We can see how that evolved to, well, with the, the treatise, Parisabhidamaga. All beings, all breathing beings, all who are born, all persons, and all who have a personality. And then I'll talk about the Visuddhimagga, the commentary, in a minute. And then in the Manta Sutta, they have specified pervasions. That is, um, lines 16 through 20. Not just all beings, but particular ones. Weak, strong, great, mighty, medium, short, small, etc., and then in the um, treatise, it gets changed to women, men, noble ones, not noble ones, etc. And then in the Metta Sutta, there's also the directional over the entire world, upwards to the skies, downwards to the depths. That's lines 30 and 33, 30 through 33. <laughs> and then... That gets changed to actual different perva- uh, um, directions, eastern, western, northern, southern. So we can see this idea of cultivating loving kindness and then sending it out is definitely there in the Metta Sutta, but to whom it gets sent out, changed in the Parisamiramaga, in the treatise. And then in the commentary, which is a little bit later, they add a whole new, this pervasion of individuals. 
when I was describing um, metta practice, we talked about, I started, um, you start with a benefactor. I'll say that um, classically in the suttas, or in the Visuddhimagga, you start with yourself and then a benefactor. The idea being that loving kindness for yourself is easier than for anybody else. In the contemporary West, we find that's not the case, so we start where it's easy. And then they have these uh, different categories of persons, and then they go to unspecified, specified, and directional. So how we practice today is influenced by a few thousand years of this kind of evolution of the pervasions and the phrases and the pervasions. So there is a connection to the metta sutta, what we were just reading, but it goes through a different a number of... Um, permutations before it gets to us. So, I'd like us to talk about this a little bit. Like, what, what are the advantages? What are the advantages of some of the later practicing with the Vasudhimaga? What's some of the advantages of practicing with the earlier, the Metta Sutta? Whether it's chanting or whether it's just uh, silently meditating, what's the difference between having specific phrases that you repeat versus maybe a line that's in a sutta? Like what? These are different uh, ways to practice, different approaches. What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? What does it highlight? Um, what does it mean for you personally as a practitioner? What does it mean um, in terms of like maybe some idea you might have about um, how it was in ancient India or something like this? And rather than do this in a big, large group, I'm going to ask you to break up into small groups and to um, talk about this. So let's see. Can we break up into groups of four? And just, well, we're not doing, um, it's just a nice, friendly conversation, <laughs> making sure that everybody has an opportunity to speak. We don't have to give advice to each other. We don't have to tell long stories about our own practice. And just discuss this question. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages of using these different approaches? One, the metta sutta. And the second, um, the contemporary, if you know, if you have a, um, a metta practice, uh, working with that one, and or you can look at the Vasudhimaga, if you, or you can look at both the contemporary and the Vasudhimaga. So on this handout, it's the far left column versus kind of like the far right column. So if you wanted to do that, that would be great. So break up into groups of four, and you can rearrange the chairs. You can get chairs out of the... Um, the cabinet and go into the social hall and, and just let's talk about these. Let's kind of uh, discuss them. Thanks. Well, that sounded like a lively conversation. It's nice. I see a lot. Of, I saw a lot of people smiling too. So that's a good sign. So now I'd like to hear back from you. 
Um, did you learn something? Did you have some new ideas? Did you hear yourself saying something that you weren't, didn't kind of surprise yourself? Like, oh, I didn't realize I felt that way. Or did you, I, I, whatever it might be. And we'll use the microphone and we can just pass the microphones around um, hand to hand. So one's here and one's back there. Maybe the person who's holding it could, maybe wants to offer something. Oh, okay. Um, We talked about a lot, so I'm trying to remember the highlights. Um, (laughs) I'd say your question was about um, comparing the Metta Sutta to the commentary. Yeah. Um, So what what we found was that um, basically the Metta Sutta is kind of like all-encompassing, and it's so broad that it's its own practice, you know, like it's kind of a way to live life in all situations, kind of. And um, the commentary or the, you know, contemporary is kind of how to apply that in real life. Yeah, this <laughs> kind of like how, you know, how to... What did I say earlier? I don't remember. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, okay, yeah. This is like <laughs> how to, um, yeah, apply it. And then, anyways, I summarized it better earlier. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That's perfectly okay. fine. <laughs> Anybody else? Uh, another group? Uh, another individual? What did you guys notice? What did you think of? And then, yes, yeah, so. so we found out that um, the Mera Sutta from thousand years ago is more about um, considering people outward and generally. Um, the weak, the strong, like not one person versus these days. It's like, may I be happy? May this person be this? So it's all, always directed at a person. And I was wondering if uh, the current um, practice was the same in different cultures. Like we as a Western culture are very focused on individuals. And I was wondering if, for example, in Japan, they do the same practice um, towards individuals or more towards groups? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I will say that the commentary is from 1,600 years ago, or, yeah, or, you know, around that, where this idea of individuals, so it has its origins way, I mean, that's a long time ago. Um, in more collective cultures, how they actually practice, I don't know. I, I Actually, that's not true. I do know. Um, I know in some of the Southeast Asian countries where Theravada Buddhism, this type of practice, is the dominant religion, they practice it closer to how we're practicing it here. So it is about individuals as opposed to just this may all beings. So does anybody want to hypothesize why this, may, why this started this with the individuals? I 
I'm wondering if it has something to do with kind of um, evolution of society. Like it feels like uh, it was a much more um, community-oriented society in, in millennia ago. And nowadays it's very uh, individual. But I think it's even more than individual. The comment I was making was uh, the way it's done today, it's all centered on myself because even when I do it for someone else, it's someone else I know, someone I'm in a relationship with, and then it expands. But a lot of the practice is about my world. Uh, and so, um, but it seems like that's, it's sad, but it feels like we can't understand something unless it's related to, <laughs> to ourselves nowadays. Um, yeah. And you're saying nowadays. Do you think it was different in the past? I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not a, a big historian, but from what I've read about history and different cultures in different continents, it feels like it was a more uh, communal life. Yeah, yeah. No, I just want to add that um, also, and yet there was probably less awareness of other cultures. There was less contact with other cultures. Absolutely. Um, and that the more that that has occurred, perhaps it's um, that, you know, so if you're with a pretty homogenous community, society, smaller group, um, maybe maybe that's part of the evolution as, w- as well, that having to do with the expansion of connection and, and more contact with other kinds of cultures and ways of life. Maybe there starts to be a little bit more us and them. There starts to be a then, whereas before it was all us. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, so we can... So I'm also not a historian, but my perspective is that I typically had this idealized version of times past and being in this wonderful communal way of living and so forth. And and I think that just by looking at how my own mind and perspective has developed, that I, I don't think individuality is anything new. It's because of the nature of having a perspective of inwards to outwards, I think this is something that uh, is the natural tendency for the mind to develop this perspective of individuality and separate self. Yeah. And yeah. Um, in many ways, that was the Buddhist pig revelation, uh, one of them, and amongst other spiritual traditions, was that this is actually uh, an illusion. Yeah. So I don't think that that individuality, uh, although that struck me at first uh, in the in the Metta Sutta, was that not only was it um, more inclusive, whatever living beings there may be, it also even, um, we, we talked about this a little bit in our group, how uh, that wording was interesting, uh, not only what all beings, but whatever beings may be. So it's even more broad and inclusive going into this uh, perspective of potentiality and what um, and kind of not knowing what the potential of all beings are. Mm. 
Mm. And I, that um, was, was really interesting to me, but certainly uh, then almost immediately individuality won back out because <laughs> that's just such a temptation and such a natural way to see the world. So, sure, yeah. sure. It's a natural way to see the world. Mm. Which uh, I, I would um, venture... Well, let me ask this. What, do you, what in your experience or what you imagine... Which is easier, to meditate, may all beings be happy, be at ease, or if you want to cultivate loving kindness, if you want to develop this warm-hearted feeling in your heart, may all beings, or may this person, whom I already have a lot of respect and warmth for, which is easier? I may have a contrary perspective to maybe it's very common to think that specificness is, is easier but for me it's a it seems to be easier to get at a, like a root feeling of love and then letting the downstream effects have their way as opposed to it seems more exhausting to me to be like more individual and like and this is the way that you know I approach a lot of things I get at that the root of of something so that cultivating that feeling of love unconditionally for all and for for me and then again getting even more at the root of having that come from a a place that I can appreciate the lack of distinction between these beings as opposed to trying to take the more kind of like in in some ways more um, exhausting task of like doing everything individually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you. The new version strikes me more as like a practice with a purpose. Um, with And I, I shared my own experience, which was how I, how I came to this was I'd been doing some other meditation that was not working for me. And I randomly was introduced to the sort of modern loving kindness. And I was like, oh my God, I feel like amazing. It was just this very sort of transformational 15 minutes or whatever. And that, um, there's a way that maybe it's a modern day thing. I don't, I don't really know, but that it it strikes me as having been sort of developed in a way that's like particularly effective for cultivating for me anyway, that sense of, of peace and of, um, goodwill towards, you know, feeling more loving towards the people I already feel loving towards feeling more compassionate towards the people that I struggle with, like being able to operate, um, from a, a better place in my life in general. And I, whereas reading, and this is my first introduction to the sort of old text, reading that, it strikes me as a teaching, which is really cool, but it doesn't immediately strike me as like as applicable or like maybe effective for, for my life today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Thank you. I think behind you, there's, uh, or I'm sorry, did you want to? Well, okay. <laughs> you guys can fight it out back there. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, so I have a couple of things. The first thing kind of feeds into the second thing. So the difference between the two, I think, is whether or not you want to focus on yourself or the world, um, in a way, or both, you know. But I, I think the Meta Sutta is more of a worldly view. Um, and with the whole... Um, individuality 
aspect of it. Um, the Medicita is, I mean, this is my first, like, Sutta study, so um, maybe I'm not, you know, I'm not completely educated at all on it. But um, so these are his Buddha's, like, teachings, right? He was enlightened, so I don't think that he had as much of a concern for himself as much as everyone, you know? So I don't think he really um, would see as much individuality, maybe? That's my kind of observation, maybe. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, maybe, unless, is there somebody who has, uh, wants a, a kind of a... Can I ask quick question? Yeah. So the way I was introduced to the modern version of this is that you start with individual people, but then you radiate outward That's to right. community and the world. So it still got to That's right. the big piece. It just didn't start there. That's exactly right. Okay. It inserted this, the individuals before these like greater uh, pervasions or radiations or something like this. And the current thinking is that the reason why this was added is because it was difficult. People were having a hard time to have this boundless, this um, completely unconditional, this completely made zero uh, discrimination between individuals, between people, between beings. That was difficult. So this idea, all beings, okay, I can hang out, loving kindness with all beings, except for that person over there who annoys me a lot when they do that thing, or, right... So there was this recognition like, okay, so let's start where it's a little bit easier and tangible and you have a felt experience. I already, and classically, it starts with yourself. I already love myself and let's build on that as a foundation and spend a lot of time there before we go out to all beings in all these different directions or different uh, kinds of beings. Yeah, you pretty much... Covered what I was just going to ask. It seems that you want to generate an emotion, generate a feeling first, specifically for yourself and those close close by you or in your life, and then you want to take that same feeling that you've just generated and bring it with you as you focus more outwardly. And if you do it often enough, you'll start to create neuronal connections, and it'll become easier, easier or less 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 of an obstacle, I, I guess, to generate that same feeling for people more on the periphery of your life. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much what it seems to me. Yeah, that's, that's, kind of, that's the theory. And I would say that's been my experience, too, is to start where it's easy and then let it grow and grow. But it grows when it's ready to grow. It's not like we don't force it and we're not, like, making it happen. We're just when this, when the loving kindness feels, when we're completely saturated with it, then we maybe, like, include somebody or a group of people that are a little bit more difficult. What I mean by difficult is we maybe don't even think about them or maybe uh, we don't have a relationship with them at all and so it just takes a little bit more work to imagine having loving kindness for them. And I would say this um, this uh, thrust of the commentaries that are done, you know, all these years later, are often to help where they kind of recognize where some of the suttas maybe needed to be augmented or maybe needed some help with how to practice with that. But I say that kind of like holding this lightly because sometimes in the commentaries, there's, it feels like there's some 
in my view, some like entertainment value added to because there's a lot of kind of wild stories in there and all kinds of uh, interesting stuff and a lot of things that aren't even in the suttas. So it's all, all kinds of stuff. But I'd like to take a break or less. Uh, Richard, do you, want to, do you want to say something? Yeah, let's take a break. So it's 11.05. Can we come back at 11.20? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> 